continuing our study of the Gospels, the so-called Sermon on the Mount, which as we have seen is not really a sermon, perhaps was not on the Mount, but rather is what is better called the Great Instruction, a series of instructions to the initiates as to how to fit themselves to receive the grace which the Master wanted to give them, how to put themselves into the most receptive position. (coughs) I will go over, I'll read again the second section that we began taking up last week, although we said most of what I plan to say Then there are a few more points, and then we will continue. This is, we are on chapter 5. This section begins with verse 38 of the Gospel of Matthew. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now much, much that is obviously sayable about these verses we have already said. Uh, I'd like to make, however, a few comments that we didn't get to last week. Verse 42, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. In this translation, it does read as though the Master is demanding of us that we be taken advantage of by anyone who wants to set us up. And it has often been, there are people, both in regard to various Christian sects and also to satsangis, who, using this kind of verse as their cover, uh, will demand from people um, a great deal, and then if they don't give it, will then uh, flay them, as it were, with this verse, and whip them over the head with it, and point out that they're being very bad. This is not really um, what is meant here at all. It is not doing anyone a favor to give in to this kind of thing. Um, what is What Jesus is talking about a better translation, and at least one modern version uses this, is uh, give to him that asketh thee, 
and don't charge interest to him that would borrow of thee. In other words, it is a it is a, a prohibition against charging interest to friendly, um, what Nastya Kripal Singh calls friendly sharing of money. Okay, and the whole thing depends on the mental attitude of the people involved. If one time uh, I was present when Master Kripal quoted Shakespeare, actually Shakespeare's character Polonius in the play Hamlet, and said, neither a borrower nor a lender be. And when someone asked him, well then, you know, how, how does that square with, say, this particular teaching in this verse, uh, Master said, you don't either borrow or lend, you share with others what you have. If you can't do that, if that's not what you're doing when you do it, then it's better not to do anything. Because if we lend money to people because we think we ought to on the grounds of, say, this particular verse, and then that money is there, you know, in our minds, and we can't forget it, um, what have we really done except forge another kind of binding that's going to pull us back into another life. I knew a satsangi who once lent a guy nine dollars. This is years ago. Nine dollars was considerably more than it is now. But even so, it wasn't an awful lot. And every time that person's name would come up in conversation for years afterwards, that satsangi would say, well, he owes me nine dollars. That was the only thing that that guy meant to him was that nine dollars. And finally I said to him, are, are, are you selling your soul for nine dollars? Are you going to have to come back another whole lifetime just to get that nine dollars back? Suppose he doesn't pay you before you die. And he didn't uh, have any answer. So, the point is, it was a, a reference to another form of the prohibition of usury or the charging of interest that is actually found throughout the Bible. The Bible's teaching on the prohibition of interest is quite strong, and uh, this is another is another example of it, although not that obviously so, if we just go by the English words in the traditional translation. <coughs> the following verse, ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. Hate thine enemy, singular. Usually in these uh, verses in this section of the Bible where it says he has heard that it has been said that refers to a quote from the law of the Old Testament the Mosaic law in this case however thou shalt love thy neighbor is as we have seen earlier most decidedly a quotation from the book of Leviticus chapter 19 where the words thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself are found the hate thine enemy is nowhere found in the Old Testament this is not a, a thing that is where Jesus is setting up against Moses. This is, the, this is the interpretation that a lot of people put on it. That we had to love our neighbor, but we didn't have to do it to our enemy. We could hate him. It'd be okay. And that was a, an oral interpretation which um, Jesus was rejecting here and, and making the very well-known esoteric point that all masters have made that there is no enemy. The only enemy that we have is our minds. There is no other enemy. No one can possibly do anything to us that works against our, our ultimate best interests 
as long as we are holding on to the hand of the Master. There is no way. This is the meaning of the statement that I read last week from my letter from Master Kripal to me back in 1967. Please know it for certain that everything that comes to your account is in your best spiritual interest. If this is true, and how can we doubt it, then who can be our enemy? See, the only enemy we can have is that one sitting within us which prevents us from understanding and taking advantage of these things. Remember again that these, all of these injunctions in this section of the Gospels, as well as most of the things that Jesus said, scattered throughout, are aimed at initiates. They are not aimed at the general public. When they are, they are clearly differentiated. Or we can tell from the context whether it's a disciple, a committed, initiated disciple or not that he is talking to. So, the true teaching is not that we love some people and hate others, but that we love everyone, including those whom we call our enemies. And why? Not because... I find this extremely interesting. Not because um, we are promised any reward for doing so. In fact, we are specifically not promised a reward for doing so, two verses down, but rather so that we will imitate God. You see, God is the dispenser of grace, not justice, the positive power, Satpurush, God the Father in Jesus' terminology, whereas Kao, or Satan, is the dispenser of justice and fairness. So God is not fair, okay, because he's loving, and he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Sun and rain are both seen here as blessings. And the idea is that no matter how bad someone is, the basic stuff of his life, the basic building blocks that he's got, the material building blocks, are not altered because of that. That God will still treat him with mercy and love, um, even though he doesn't deserve it. Because the point is that nobody deserves it. And that our our perception of seeing these things is faulty. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And the publicans, of course, we have seen that Jesus had at least one disciple who was a publican, and that disciple is the very one who was reporting these words. That is, it was Matthew, also known as Levi. The publicans were the tax collectors of the day, and they worked for the Roman occupying power. Therefore, they were despised as traitors, quizlings, whatever, by the ordinary people. So, by using them does not mean that Jesus himself was despising the publicans, but he was saying, using their own prejudices against them. In other words, pointing out that, that these people whom they despise, even they, the worst you can possibly imagine, even they managed to love those who loved them. In the same spirit, uh, Master Kripal Singh has pointed out that animals also um, love those who love them. And if we're supposed to be men, you know, human beings, what uh, wherein lies our claim if we can't do any more than they do? And the same with our brethren or our family. If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans sell? 
salute means treat with respect, and brethren, of course, means our family members. Many traditional societies, including both ancient Palestine, uh, where this instruction was being given, and also modern India, uh, tremendous stress was laid on, and is laid on family ties, much more than we are used to. And it almost is certain that uh, in societies like that, that a person is bound to act more respectfully, with more respect and love to family members than to others. If someone gets into office, as a matter of course, he will hire his family members. It's expected of him. And uh, if he has any kind of ability, he will prefer his family members and ignore other people. And Jesus is here pointing out that this is an inferior way to act and not what is demanded of an initiate. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Absolutely breathtaking verse, uh, which perhaps does not mean perfect in every way, as God is perfect, although I see no reason that it cannot. We know that perfect masters exist, and that Jesus was himself one, and that he is urging, in other words, the people to do that which he himself knew was possible. It has been suggested that the word translated as perfect can better be translated as true in the sense of the word sat. Um, therefore, the, the verse would read, Be ye therefore completely true, even as your Father which is in heaven is true. I personally think that the word perfect fits the context better. Since he has just used the imitation of the Father as the rationale for the level of behavior that he is requiring. Just as we are supposed to be like God who makes his sun shine on all kinds of people and sends rain for all kinds of people and loves everyone, so we should be perfect like him. And the fact remains that this is a very difficult verse for people who, would, who accept the traditional Christian, and perhaps Judaic, although in its classical form it exists really only in Christianity, view of the depravity of human beings, the fact that we cannot be perfect because we are badly flawed, and that it depends entirely um, on the grace of God to save us. Now, it does depend entirely on the grace of God, that's true, and we are badly flawed, that's true too. But the fact remains that ultimately, basically, essentially, in the fullness of our being, we are already even as God is. That is the teaching of all masters. And that is the promise that Jesus is holding out here. You can become perfect as your Father is perfect because ultimately you and your Father are not separate. And that is definitely implied here as well as in other places throughout the gospel also. So it's a tremendously important verse, one often quoted by the modern masters, a very central keystone, the whole so-called Sermon on the Mount um, depends in a way on this verse because that's what is demanded of us, is a very high standard. And um, we are supposed to work on that. It's true, as elsewhere in the Gospels and in the teachings of the Masters in general is explained, that the 
The way that we can do it is through grace. That's right. But still we have to be making efforts. And the famous example of the boy running late to school, and if he sits down by the side of the road to pray and beg for forgiveness, he will be even later. But if he keeps on running and prays as he runs, then he will do his, be doing his best and maybe the teacher will forgive him. It is something like that. We have to keep running. We must do our best. We have to act as though these things matter. And with the grace of God, then that which we cannot do on our own, he will do. And there is no doubt whatsoever that he is the ultimate doer and the grace is the primary thing. But from our angle, we must make efforts. There is no way that we cannot make efforts. Okay, that ends the fifth chapter. Of course, the chapter divisions come much later than the actual Gospels. Chapter 6 begins with a very interesting section. Take heed that you do not that ye do not your alms, A-L-M-S, alms, not A-R-M-S, which in New England is pronounced the same way. But it means, of course, doing worthwhile charitable acts which uh, are considered meritorious. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now this section is really very interesting section and it has to do with the whole business of the choices that we make um, and the kind of rewards that we want. Okay, for one thing, the word hypocrite is a mistranslation. This is not something that is commonly understood, but those scholars who have gone into it point out that at the time these Gospels were written, the word hypocrite did, did not have the meaning of someone playing a false role that it had in later Greek. The word is a direct transliteration from the Greek and uh, comes to us straight out of the Greek language. Later Greek, it did have that meaning, but at this time it meant rather someone like what we would call a casuist, an over-scrupulous legalist. Might say someone who is who couldn't see the forest for the trees, in other words, does not mean a false, or, well, does not mean a hypocrite. And this is an important point, not so much here, where both meanings uh, might make fit the context, but later on in the Gospels we will get to places where Jesus really uh, gives it to the Pharisees. Okay, and the Pharisees, um, while there was certainly a lot of differences of understanding 
between Jesus and the Pharisees as to how to fulfill the commandments um, of the scriptures that they shared between them, the fact is that Jesus did not really call the Pharisees hypocrites. He accused them of making mistakes in, the w- in their manner of interpretation and of caring too much for the letter and not enough for the spirit. But he did not really um, accuse them of being of all of the really awful things that the word hypocrite connotes. That he really didn't do. And that's important. We'll go into this again when we get to some of those sections. That That's important for a lot of reasons, among, among them being that the Pharisees were extremely well-meaning people. And they unquestionably made errors, as members of religious establishments usually do. But they were no... They stand in the Gospels as the type of the... Um, ruling religious establishment, the institutionalized religious bodies. And uh, Jesus, what Jesus addresses to them is addressed really throughout all history to any um, institutionalized religion that exists. And what he says to them is, is true of any institutionalized religion. And here, he is not so much speaking only of the members of the um, the Pharisaic movement as also people under their influence who, because of the fact that it was considered very important to do meritorious deeds, assumed therefore that it was important that everyone know that they did it. So that apparently they did literally have trumpets blown when they were giving alms. Although that possibly is an exaggeration. Jesus exaggerates sometimes very humorously throughout the Throughout the Gospels, the beam and the and the speck um, imagery, which we'll get to in a short while, which is in the same section as an example, so that he says, you know, um, get the beam out of your own eye before you take the moat out of another. Beam, as the word means, literally rafter, and moat means speck so small that you can't see it, and it's. Uh, rather a striking, bizarre image. If we are not having grown up with it in childhood, it would strike us as very strong and strange if we were to hear it for the first time. So it may be that they didn't really sound a trumpet before them, but the point is that they let people know. And this is a, you know, in, in any kind of spiritual endeavor, Sanchi says that people, ideally people should not even know that we are initiated. Not in the sense that we pretend that we don't have a master or that we're ashamed of him or that we don't fulfill people's desire to learn about him if they want to learn. That's not the point. We, we know that we are supposed to do all those things. But the thing is that, that in our interaction with people as we move about, uh, in no sense should we think of ourselves as a spiritual person and present ourselves to others as a spiritual person. There is no um, justification for that. Part of it, these things are subtle and they're very uh, insidious. Also, we think if we think of ourselves as a as a spiritual person, one who meditates, uh, one who pleases God by virtue of being connected with Him via the Master, and so forth. If we think of ourselves like that, um, we can't help but communicate it to other people, and the the reaction that we get will probably not be the one that we expect. Um, 
although we may earn ourselves in some cases um, admiration from others, it will be at a tremendous cost because this is the meaning of verily I say unto you they have their reward. Whatever we accept it's like the business of not telling our experiences to others. In the initiation instructions, I think almost everyone has heard um, those instructions, and at the end of them, in the factors to avoid, things to avoid, it definitely prohibits uh, several things. One of them is telling our experiences to others. Another is teaching other people how to meditate. Both of those things uh, aim at the same the same particular human propensity. If we have an experience and we want to tell it to someone else, what we are doing is taking that which exists on a level higher than our ego, reducing it down to the level of the ego, and then getting credit for it in that way. It is like weak meditation experience can only be gained at the expense of the ego. If we are having experiences and we are loving them, while we are having them, our ego is at least temporarily submerged. Otherwise, we would not be able to have them. But who is it that tells about them? It's only the ego. And when people praise us, who is it that receives that praise and revels in it? Again, it's only the ego. The same thing applies to giving giving of alms or doing anything worthwhile. We do seva. If we are really doing seva, we can only really do seva again at the expense of the ego. If we are doing seva and thinking all the time, this is good seva that I am doing. This is great, great stuff. Master is really pleased with me. And like that, what we are doing is we are, well, Samhansa used to say, putting ashes on the delicious dessert that we prepared. And we have our reward. And if we, if we do it in such a way as to elicit that kind of response from other people doesn't mean that we can't encourage each other and be helped by such encouragement but if we are looking for that if that is our aim well then that's all we'll get and there is the famous example that Master Kripal gives in morning talks of the um, the man who who is going to recite in front of Guru Hargobind the sixth guru of the six, the Japji. And the guru said that anyone who could recite the Japji perfectly from beginning to end, he would give him anything that he wanted. And the man began to recite. Of course, reciting means singing melodiously in the sixth style. And he, as he was nearing the end, the guru thought he has done it absolutely perfectly and um, I should give him my own place. I should make him the guru. And the man thought at that moment or around that time, he remembered a very beautiful horse that the master had been given a few days earlier and he thought, I really like that horse. I think I will ask for that. So when the thing was over, the man immediately asked for the horse and the guru gave it to him and he said, now look here, I was going to give you my own place, my own seat. So it's, we don't know what we're losing. When we accept a lower reward, we don't know what we're losing. And this implies that um, thy father, you see, doesn't imply a specific state, 
Thy father which seeth in secret, he knows. He does not need to be told by anybody. We don't need to have... There used to be a worker for the master, whom I knew well, who whenever anyone would go to India, would say to them, well, tell the master I'm doing a good job, will you? And that was his his perspective. Okay, He wanted to make sure the master recognized him. Well, God bless him. You know, that's we all see things. But... The point is the master doesn't need to be told by other people what kind of a job we're doing. Um, he knows or he doesn't know. You know, and he does know. And he sees in secret and he rewards maybe openly, as it says here, although that word openly is not necessarily part of the original manuscript. Some of them don't have it. It just says, Thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee. So it's these are important things. We make choices, and the basis of those choices, we, we deal ourselves our own fate. In other words, we can we can manipulate it um, one way or the other. We can have, on the one hand, that which is more precious than anything in the world, or we can have, on the other, seashells and stones, the pastor says. Both can be given to us by him, and both either can be given depending on what we are implicitly asking for. So you're trading uh, one kind of reward for another kind. When we, if we talk about our meditation experiences or our seva, what we're doing in seva or sit in such a way, even if we sit in meditation, and this is what is meant in the next verse. You see, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. See, this is not, obviously this does not refer to people praying together or meditating together, all of whom are doing the same thing. Um, there is no prohibition here against group meditation or, or even in the, in the synagogue um, in the terms of the day. What is prohibited against is ostentatious prayer or meditation. It's like if, if you are sitting in meditation in such a place the people who are not meditating, maybe people who are not even initiated, notice you and are attracted to what you are doing, um, then I think it's it's an important thing to to look into ourselves and ask why we are doing this. This is the kind of thing that Sanchi meant when he said that people ordinarily should not even know that we are initiated. Nothing about us should should call attention to the fact that we are are supposed to be spiritual people except that which proceeds out from our hearts. Except the whatever grace we receive from the Master and depending on how pure our lives are and how strong our connection is between us and Him, if that grace extends out by itself without any effort on our part, that's another thing. But in terms of impressing people, um, letting them know that we are doing the spiritual thing, then this is 
in the admiration that we get, well, we have our reward and we're not going to get any other for it. Whatever meditation we do under those conditions um, is going to lead right to that and nowhere else. This is also the prohibition about not teaching others to meditate, which is found also in the initiation instructions. It's uh, tied in with this very closely because oftentimes if people come to know that we are doing a practice, they will want us to teach them to. And they will say, well, just show me something. You know, just teach me something. Where, where do you put your attention? Like that. But the com- commandment is very strong that if we do that, we will become their guru. We will be responsible for whatever happens to them. And uh, we can't bear that. We can't carry that. We are not strong enough. So, we sometimes give in to that because there is something in us that loves, you know, to be the teacher. That loves to be in, looked up to in this way. It's a very natural and very human thing. It's also a very ego thing. And it is something that we have to overcome and work through. And otherwise our reward is going to be on the level on which we are after. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, and Master Kripal has said many times that the esoteric meaning of this verse is the closet of the body. And shutting the door means closing off the outer senses to the sounds and things that we can see and hear. Pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. If, however, we are not in an environment like a church or a meditation hall where uh, praying and meditating is what everyone is doing, then we should probably close ourselves off physically in a separate room so that other people in whatever house or wherever we are are not being constantly reminded of the fact that we are meditating or praying at this particular time and be reminded of how great we are as compared maybe to them. Okay, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. This, I used to think that, that this, in fact I was told when I was a kid, that this verse referred specifically, literally and specifically, to the Roman Catholic practice of the Rosary. And I was sure this was a, this was a perfect example of how superior Protestants were. This was what I was taught. This was what I grew up believing. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, the practice of the Rosary, as used, at least as used to be used by Catholics, is a, is a, a form of Simran which was picked up by, from the Sufis by the Crusaders in the 11th and 12th centuries AD and is really, in its origins, is a very high practice. The word vain repetition probably was influenced. The, the translators of this version, who were very strong Protestants and anti-Papists, uh, unquestionably allowed that to influence them in their use of, of these words. But the best modern translations use the words... Um, pile up phrases and and what those phrases consist of 
uh, is implied in the following verse, for your father knoweth what things you have need of before he ask him. And interestingly, as I grew older and got into various forms of Protestant religion, I used to attend prayer meetings in evangelical churches. And I don't know if any of you had that experience, but there is a great deal of sincerity and devotion there. I will not deny it. Nonetheless, the prayers consist of one person after another praying out loud uh, one request after another. O Lord, bless this one, bless that one, grant us this, grant us that, do this, do that, uh, sometimes on for 5, 10, 15 minutes. There is nothing that is said that is not a request. And that is, is my understanding, if the, if the scholars are correct, in their um, current understanding of the original meaning of these words, that appears to be exactly what Jesus is prohibiting against. That is what is meant by vain repetitions or piling up phrases that we are asking things which the Father knows very well we have need of and we don't need to ask. Also the the uh, they think they shall be heard if they're much speaking. Someone bullishah says, God is not deaf. You know that you'll have to shout so loud to hear him. But this continues now with the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, which we will take up next week. Uh, it's a thing in itself. requires a lot of time and very important part of, the, of this instruction on many levels. And we will consider it next week, God willing. We are continuing with our study of the great instruction.